0: Oftentimes, when we ask companies whether they track metrics, they say yes, but they actually track only their own metric. They don't care at all whether the partner is successful.
1: From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Ruth DeBacker about the importance of full suite of metrics plays in any successful joint venture. In today's episode, we'll talk more with Ruth and her colleague, Eileen Kelly Renodo, about ways to make joint ventures and alliances more successful. The better companies become at managing such increasingly complex partnerships, the more likely they are to emerge as partners of choice for tackling new markets or channels. Ruth is a partner in our New York office and leads the Global Joint Ventures and Alliances service line within our M&A practice. Eileen is also based in New York and is a senior expert in our M&A practice. Ruth, let me ask you first, um, how do successful partnerships typically evolve? Do companies start with small joint ventures and then move up to big ones, for example? Or does the variety run the gamut?
0: Um, a lot of it tends to be industry-specific. So In some industries you, where you see a lot of innovation, uh, you see del- development of, of new product categories, and that tends to be in product-specific partnerships. Those type of companies, including the pharmaceutical sector, but we now see it also in the digital sector, you see lots of partnerships uh, with a very finite, um, finite objective. If we look at other industries, more industrial industries, um, also industries at different uh, levels of maturity, uh, we can see uh, par- partnership and joint ventures to enter new geographies. Um, those types of of partnerships tend to be larger joint ventures. Um, but over time, what we ha- have seen is there's uh, there is a m- more of a mix, so companies that have large joint ventures may also uh, now start partnership, partnering with smaller digital firms, for instance, to step into new capabilities. So uh, it does shift over time.
1: What are some of the unique aspects to managing joint ventures and alliances?
0: The main reason why partnerships need a bit of different... Uh, management attention is because it has some characteristics which are very different than the way that you operate your own business unit. First of all, you've multiple owners, um, each with their own characteristics, right? So you need to have alignment of the objectives between the partners, and then um, you need to make sure that it's a win-win situation that you create, because otherwise it becomes inherently uh, an unstable partnership. Um, you've created a new entity with its own independent character. At the end of the day, it really has its own culture. It's it's going to be a blended culture between the two partners, as well as create its own uh, objectives and its own culture and strategy. The third thing is that it really is quite complex in how uh, you you govern these. Uh, Sometimes it's has an official formal structure, and there's a board, and then uh, who sits on the board, how often you rotate your board, um, etc., needs a lot of thought, and how the board gets involved with the leadership um, in a micromanaging way, more in an empowering way. But these complex governance structures can lead to slower decision making, and that really causes sometimes friction and, uh, with partners who are far more um, quick in, in, in their decision-making, for instance. And then the fourth one is there's partner in the interdependence, especially in operations, in, in partnerships where you rely on service agreements uh, with one of the partners providing or both of the partners providing services to, uh, to to the separate entity.
1: Got it. And is there a typical duration to these business partnerships? Is it related to the size of the venture, and, and has it evolved over time?
0: Yeah, i um. I've been working this year in a partnership which actually originated in the in the mid 70s and it's still standing. So the partnership's older than I am, uh, which which um, which was great to see. Um, some of these have have finite life. So a lot of work I do is in the pharmaceutical sector. Um, the partnership is particular to a product. So if you've got a successful products, you are probably working in development for five years, you had a patent life and for another 10. So, you know, 15 years of this. But other partnerships, we've seen people go in and say, okay, it's going to be five years. It really is to help us uh, get over the hump and put a beachhead in, in, in China, but then we want to scale up. So some people come into the partnership with a mindset of this is going to be um finite in duration. Others actually carry on for decades and have evolved. There was a very good example of Siemens and Toshiba. They started working together in the 80s and they evolved their partnership. They worked on phones and then chips and then ultrasounds and they brought in GE as a third partner and so forth. So good partnerships can uh, where, where partners feel comfortable uh, working with each other, they can evolve over time. They, they morph a little, but they, they can stretch for uh, for for decades.
2: And just to build on that a bit, I think it's important to recognize that it's not necessarily a failure to have a partnership that ends. It can end very successfully, as Ruth was mentioning, because it could have succeeded and uh, achieved the objective. The other thing to keep in mind is, as you look across the portfolio of partnerships, you need to make sure that you've got your capabilities and your expectations and your tracking mechanisms set up so that you're able to adjust to those.
1: Thanks, Eileen. What do you see as the key factors that determine whether a JV or alliance will succeed? Ruth?
0: We actually conducted a survey of of several hundred people involved in business development and managing of partnerships and asked them what factors are most critical for the success of a partnership. Um, and what we saw um, clearly was uh, there, there are two factors which are both contributing to the success of a partnership and also were the ones that were missing in uh, failing partnerships. So one is being very clear on the partnership objectives and what the strategy of the uh, newly created venture will be. And then uh, secondly, it's, it's really the communication and the trust because you're dealing with others human beings and 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 it all comes down to whether you you trust the people that you work with day to day um, and 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 um, the third and the fourth actually go together. so if you look at governance and kpis it it really talks about the accountability. So do you have systems and and processes set up for the accountability, and are you clear on what you're tracking and what you want the management of the partnership to um to uh, to achieve? And then finally, this was not a contributing factor to success, but it's really uh, one factor which is really important in avoiding failure is a plan for restructuring. The world changes. The partners will change. How you actually are um, easily adapting to a changing environment, changing strategic objectives, uh, changing markets, and so forth will determine the fate of the, of the partnership, basically.
1: Thanks, Ruth. I- Eileen, so what do these findings suggest in terms of how leaders should approach the management of partnerships?
2: As we looked at these different factors, we tried to consolidate in and figure out what were the four major levers from a management perspective focus first on establishing the clear foundation. So if we think about partnerships across their life cycle... Uh, We have preparing for the partnership, structuring, uh, which is actually getting the deal done, and then we move forward again to the management, uh, and that includes the launch and ramp-up phase as well as the uh, ongoing execution, uh, operations, and evolution of the partnership. Having a clear foundation here is critical, both in terms of the clarity and the alignment. So if we start at the beginning when we talk about the preparation phase, uh, making sure that everybody is on the same page about what we're trying to achieve, making sure that there's um, clear alignment on what the objectives are, the priorities, uh, there's no substitute for that uh, that type of informed clarity and decision-making uh, amongst yourself internally, as well as once you get to the negotiating table with your counterparty. Uh, sometimes this early phase is, is uh, short-circuited. People think that they're on the same page, even internally, and they need to make sure that every department has the same understanding of what the objectives are, and how they're going to be moving forward. Um, to make sure that you're ready for the negotiation phase, uh, having team members involved who are experienced with negotiations and making sure that they have all gone through the process of those discussions can be very helpful. At the beginning of the process, that internal uh, alignment is primarily, in, is primarily within your own team. Then you move towards the extended team who are negotiating the, the, the deal, the, pro- the partnership. And then you move forward to the operating team. Ideally, you've got your operating team and your management team already involved during the negotiation phase, but you need to make sure that they are, in fact, included so that there's a clear understanding of the overall market, there's a clear understanding of what the objectives are and how those priorities are coming together, without those future expectations being clearly defined, setting up the next phase of of your KPIs, setting forward your processes, making sure everybody has clarity on roles and responsibilities,
1: starts to become much more difficult. So, uh, understood. In establishing that clear foundation, though, is is there a failure point that you see particularly often with companies?
2: Yeah, I think the the failure point we often see is getting the internal alignment. Often people walk into negotiations thinking they're all on the same page, but because they haven't taken the disciplined approach of getting things articulated and written down, um, they end up actually negotiating on the same side of the table actually having disagreements among their own internal teammates about what they're trying to achieve and what their priorities are. So it's important to make sure that you get that done before you walk into the room for negotiation. So that's the number one failure point. The number two failure point is actually where you're spending your time. So making sure that you actually understand what are the objectives, where is the value going to be, and how do we ensure that we, uh, that we have this kind of relentless focus on what truly matters.
0: Yeah, and one, one other thing I would add is um, also be, be mindful of who uh, is the ultimate decision-maker and what are their objectives. Um, and it's especially important, um, I was supporting a client on um, um, negotiating with a PE-owned company. And the PE owner's time frame and objectives is actually different than the company management's objectives. And it was really important to know who's at the other side of the table and what is the PE owner's objectives, because otherwise they would swoop in at the last minute, um, and, and, and um, if the objectives did not meet their eventual exit plans, etc., um, it would actually jeopardize ever coming to a full agreement. So um, that, that's a very important point as well to truly understand who are the stakeholders. I agree.
2: And I think that also starts to become even more important. If you're thinking about who should be doing what task and how you're actually managing your operations, sometimes you get focused on the day-to-day and you lose track of what are your strategic objectives and what are the, who are the decision makers who need to be incorporated into the ongoing dis, uh, discussions. So making sure that that trails through into the management of the ongoing operations is also quite important. And again, taking the lens of you know how do you handle this when you're in a mixed portfolio or you've got a large JV or a, a group of smaller or more moderately sized uh, alliances? This can actually vary quite a bit. The the smaller partnerships tend to have more clearly defined um, objectives, and the JVs tend to be more all-encompassing. Obviously, not always true, but but as a rule of thumb, the broader the partnership, the more critical it is to make sure you've got the clarity of what your priorities, and what your strategy is. It's sometimes easy to wave your hands a little bit and to assume everybody's on the same page, especially when it's big issues and you think people would have a similar perspective. But making sure that those uh, those perspectives are clearly defined becomes exponentially more important as you're dealing with broader uh, topics and bigger, uh, bigger sizes and bigger time frames.
1: We'll resume our discussion in just a minute. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Inside the Strategy Room and invite you to check out some special podcast episodes on the cognitive and organizational biases that can get in the way of good decision-making. Our Bias Busters episodes can help you spot and overcome them. Tim Kohler, a McKinsey partner, and Dan Lavallo, a senior McKinsey advisor, have written a series of McKinsey Quarterly articles identifying a wide range of these cognitive and organizational biases and how to overcome them. Their Bias Buster episodes are based on these articles and provide rich examples of why these biases happen and how executives have most effectively dealt with them. They are also available inside the Strategy Room. Now back to our episode. Can you discuss some specific ways managers can make sure everyone has those core perspectives fully aligned?
2: Some tactical approaches can be helpful. When we think about the strategy across the design, launch planning, and post-launch phases, there are a couple different techniques we can use. First, co-creating the partnership strategy, making sure people are involved, making sure your operational team and your management team is brought in early in the process can be a best practice because it makes sure that everybody understands how decisions are made, what the strategy is, what the major uh, value creation opportunities are for the partnership. Um, It also helps you ensure that all the people who are involved with operations and all the parent organizations are aligned on those priorities. Within launch, we come back to communication. And this will be a theme that you hear over and over again in our discussion. It's really critical to make sure that you're communicating frequently, clearly, and that everybody has a similar set of expectations about what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And that's true in the strategy phase. It's true throughout the true throughout the performances, the performance evaluations, and it's true when you're talking about the financials. Post-launch, we start to get into talking about how your company interactions are, gonna have, are going to be occurring. It's also important to make sure that you've got your evolution and your assessment of how the market is shifting, any different dynamics that are going With performance, you want to make sure that you're clearly and early in the process defining what those KPIs are going to be. How are you going to evaluate your performance over time? How do you make sure that everybody's on the same page about what those evaluations will look like and what they're going to be? Dashboards are very helpful early in the process and throughout the management. And finally, the financial aspects, this is really a subcategory of your performance, obviously, but making sure that financial incentives are clearly defined early in the process, that you understand the financial flows, and that the incentive mechanisms are set up to uh, encourage the behaviors that you're working for.
1: So once you've established that foundation, what's the next big lever that partnership managers need to pull?
2: This is one of the most critical aspects of partnership, is making sure that you maintain that uh, positive and, uh, and, and productive relationships. Relationships are particularly important in partnerships because while the individuals are working hand-in-hand with their own teammates, they're also working hand-in-hand with people from another company. And so that dynamic can create some tension. They don't necessarily have the same approach. They don't necessarily speak and communicate in the same fashion, um, and that can be via electronic uh, communication or in person. Um, and they come from a different culture. So, as a result, you have to really put a lot of effort into making sure that you have these opportunities to build that trust and you keep that communication open and flowing. So, some of the, the techniques that are particularly important are making sure that your teams can connect socially and that it's not just all about business. It's hard to create trust when you're only involved on um, involved in a relationship that is so tactical. You want to make sure that you're able to get to know each other and understand how each other approaches problems, and communicates, and wants to to continue forward with this. This actually starts as as soon as the relationship begins, which is even pre-negotiation. It continues on through negotiations, and then as you get into the launch phase and the management phase, you need to continue to have those opportunities to deepen the relationship from a social perspective. Making sure everybody stays in the loop uh, and that those communication lines are really open and flowing. Um, more communication in general is better.
1: You know, I would imagine that cross-border and cross-cultural partnerships may create some additional challenges on that front. Can you share any advice on how to overcome those that may not exist in a traditional domestic alliance?
2: Yeah, so cross-borders are tricky. Um, they're, they're, they're tricky because everybody knows that there's a little bit of tension around the different uh, expectations from a cultural perspective, from a, from a different communication style perspective. However, the nice thing is because people expect those differences, they do spend a little bit of extra time and care making sure that they address the different communication styles, making sure that culture is understood and appreciated, making sure that their personnel are all informed about how this is a different cultural situation. Unfortunately, that sometimes stops at the beginning in the negotiation phase and it needs to be encouraged and, and uh, role modeled on a continual basis to ensure that the team members and the management team are, in fact, operating with each other in the most effective and efficiently possible. So sometimes that is is uh, going to include having more social interactions. Sometimes that's a little bit of cultural training. Sometimes it's increased communication or a shift in your communication style. For example, some people like to have meetings that are all action. You send out a pre-read. Everybody does their homework. They walk in, and they're ready to go and problem solve, not on the decisions that have already been made, but on the tricky really sticky situations that they need to understand better and they need to work through together as a team. So they want a really strong working team meeting. Other times people walk in and they actually want to review the progress to date and then they want to be able to take away the sticky situations so they can think about it and have committee meetings and have smaller group discussions over time to help them come to the answer. Knowing what type of meeting you're walking into is critical because you could walk in with the best of intentions and have a horrible meeting because you try to come in with The opposite agenda. So, ensuring that you understand the cultural predilection, understanding that you understand the communication style and how people want to operate can be tremendously helpful in cross border situations. I'm going to actually extend that and say domestic partnerships are, they deserve the same level of thoughtfulness. They deserve the same approach in terms of making sure you understand the communication style, making sure you understand the culture of your partner, and that you appreciate it, and that you emphasize to your teammates. In your, on your own side, that they need to appreciate and understand um, the, the, the perspectives of their counterparts. That sometimes gets missed. And in particular, as we see an increase in uh, cross-industry partnerships, we see people trying to go from um, you know, a, a more traditional industry to a more um, innovation-driven industry. Those types of, of disconnects can be damaging. And you want to make sure that you set your team up for success by emphasizing what are the components of the style for my partner that I really want to uh, be aware of, appreciate, or leverage. Because sometimes those style differences are indicative of different skill sets as well.
0: Yeah, I would build on that and, and, and basically say, and having an explicit conversation is is, is really very important. Um, and, and just like Eileen said, being being aware, like if people are aware, well, I'm dealing with a Japanese company, you know that final sign-off meetings are quite different um, than American style, uh, for instance, on how many open issues could still be there, et cetera. Um, but now digital decision-making, you know, digital operations is very different from the way other industries have operated, right? It's so digital is very used to releasing beta versions and tinkering with on with, with, with solutions and so forth. If you compare that with pharma, where it's like completely different development life cycles of 10-year development life cycles, or or similarly in in oil and gas, where the exploration phase takes much much longer. And if you make a mistake, there's no going back. You can't really say, oh, we drilled in the wrong well in the wrong place. Now let's move it six months later, right? So th- those type of industries being aware of of um, how is the decision making come coming along and so forth. Having an explicit conversation around that is is, is really what's key because um, you may think, well, we're both from the Midwest, we've got similar culture. They're innovation driven. We're innovation driven. But before you know it, it actually is a very very in- different industry, and it's really what's under the surface that um, that 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 needs to get exposed.
1: Okay, got it. Um- Any other advice on ways to build and nurture the relationship? What's the next element? Eileen? Uh,
2: Making sure that there's clarity from a corporate perspective on what the capabilities and uh, motivations are and making sure that there's understanding uh, from who is best suited to take on what task. Sometimes you end up having either people or organizations overall who get very attached to the concept of, doing one task or another. We, we worked with two consumer companies that were working together to try to set up a new joint venture, and they walked in with the expectation that company A, the first company, would be in charge of all of the financial aspects. The head of the finance team was going to be one of their senior folks, and they thought they would they would be able to take care of all of the reporting, all the tracking, et cetera. About halfway through the negotiations, they realized that their counterparty, partner B, was actually very rigorous and thoughtful about how they did all their financial Uh, assessments, all their KPIs, and they had very strong processes and procedures in place. So, although they ended up having the senior exec from company A leading the finance team, they ended up leveraging the finance team members from company B and actually pulling over their processes and their dashboards to make sure that they adhered to um, the rigorous standards that company B had set forth. There are tools, processes, and personnel uh, factors that we think can help with these quite a bit starting with the personnel aspect senior sponsors and having those uh, those champions for your your partnership is really critical and i think there's a lot of understanding about why they're critical on the internal design phase when you're starting to prepare for the partnership and even through the negotiations there's clarity on on how and why your executive team members get involved but even through the launch and management of the of the partnership, it's really important for those sponsors to stay involved and to give some of their time, uh, both in terms of making sure that we stay on track with the partnership, and also to make sure that you've got that clarity and that decision making the ability to course correct uh, as the as uh, the situation warrants. The next piece is making sure that there's a partnership management team or an alliance management team, they go by different names depending on the company, within the parent organization. That team plays a pretty critical function in making sure that you're monitoring the cross-company performance and the cross-company relationship to make sure that there's not any you know, kind of stones in the road that need to be addressed proactively. Um, and if there are some stones that they get dealt with. Um, and then, of course, experience negotiation support is key because you want to make sure that uh, those negotiations set you up for success with your relationship. You want to make sure that people are going after a, you know, one plus one equals two and a half, three, four, <laughs> not we win and you lose kind of mentality. So that experience negotiation support can help uh, make sure that the relationship stays positive and doesn't devolve into tension.
1: Got it. Um so can you elaborate a bit on the types of processes that partnerships need to ensure success?
2: The processes are things that, um, that, that we can use in a partnership to make sure that expectations are set ahead of time and that people understand how the processes are going to help enhance their decision-making, how they're going to help make the partnership more effective, and how you're going to have increased efficiency. So we mentioned before the agenda issue. How are you handling meetings? How do you want to make sure that everybody's expectations for what the meeting is going to ha- uh, going to incorporate and what it's going to be like? How do you make sure that's that's addressed ahead of time? So those agenda items, not the most ex- exciting thing to be talking about, but it can be really impactful. Um, similarly, your performance updates, making sure you're defining the KPIs. And even more so, making sure you're defining why your KPI is important and how it reflects the goal. It can be hard as an operating team or a management team to have thousands of KPIs that you're trying to track. Making sure you've got a clear set of the ones that really matter based on the objectives and the market situation that the partnership is dealing with can really help streamline the discussions about the performance. The last process is the portfolio review making sure that you understand and have dedicated time set aside amongst your team to review the performance of each partnership to understand how they're achieving their goals individually and then how they're furthering the strategy of your parent organization overall. And then finally, as we we think about the tools, um, Obviously, the financial models and guidelines are quite important, <laughs> and I think those get a lot of discussion and a lot of airtime uh, because everybody thinks in terms of how do I make sure that we're hitting the financial targets and we're projecting and looking forward effectively. But it's also important to think in terms of what tools are going to help us execute and make sure that we're, um, we're having a clear approach and as much as possible a consistent approach. And this is particularly important when you've got a portfolio of multiple partnerships or multiple similar partnerships.
1: Do you find that most companies have these tools and processes in place in their partnerships, or do they need to build them?
2: Again, with our survey, we asked companies, um, where do you have resources to support your JVs and alliances? We had some pretty surprising results. About half um, have versus do not have the financial modeling and guidelines for, for financial evaluations. Um, that's lower than I think we all expected, but it was nothing compared to the surprise that, very very few uh, companies have the playbooks that are necessary to help support the the launch of their JV or alliance and the playbooks to help the ongoing management of their JVs or Alliances. that's disappointing because those playbooks can have a lot of tools that will help that help your management team be consistent be more efficient and uh, and Everybody's expectations.
1: So, what about accountability? I assume that many of those processes and tools are intended to help support that as well. Ruth?
0: Yeah, if we think about accountability, there are truly two parts which are underpinning that one is the governance. And the other one is uh, the performance uh, metrics and the performance tracking. So If we think through governance, most people think about, okay, who's going to be the CEO and how do we split the CEO chairman role on the JV, et cetera. But we really want to emphasize that governance is, is, is a broad set. Um, one, it starts with structure. Um, the, the partnerships that are the most successful are those where there's one central point of accountability. So, a CEO of, of the JV or um, the uh, a central management team of, of a partnership, and you've got an active board. You do want the links back to, the, um, to the, each of the partner organizations, uh, and the board provides that link, so you want them to be actively involved, but not in all the decision-making. So, um, and then for JVs, we actually like to see independent board members. So they bring a, a level of insight a level of um independence that oftentimes the, the partners will will not bring so it shouldn't the board should not uh, fully be consistent of um of executives of of each of the partner organizations but do think about uh, specific um, specific capabilities that you may need on the board for the new venture and and get some independent uh uh, independent board members that obviously have the blessings of the partners, um, but, um, but 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 don't necessarily play the the, part, the the partner role. On the roles and responsibilities here, the management role and the board role need to be clear. The worst part is where it's like a a, a a kiddie soccer team where everyone is trying to be involved in all the decision making. Um, certain veto rights, um, especially on. Capital allocation, especially on um, key uh, roles within the executive team, like CEO, CFO, um, COO appointments. Um, that really is the role of the board. But otherwise, um, they they track performance and 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 intervene uh, when when metrics are are missed. And then that brings us to the processes. So uh, r- having regular meetings that track. Um, the performance of the partnership. so the, the, the board agenda would include how are we tracking against our original objective, where are we falling behind? Do we actually need to evolve this partnership or can we expand this partnership because it's so wildly successful, etc? The board should also think about uh, those elements um, but be grounded in the reality of performance and not just think about, okay what's the strategy of the partnership um, independently. Uh, when we ask people whether the, they have the necessary performance metrics in place, um, the majority has performance metrics in place, but only ten percent actually thought they were sufficient. Forty percent had, um, had no performance measures in place, which we thought was very surprising in some ways. But then again. No, because if we're (laughs) we're talking to negotiation, often the conversations we're part of is, oh, we'll do this later. We're not doing it during the negotiation. We'll do it during kickoff, or we'll do it once we get to know each other and the teams on the ground and the management team needs to define their metrics. And you actually want to do it up front. Because this goes hand in hand with the strategic objectives, and the people who are negotiating the, the the partnership and 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 the structure, they're the ones who actually know what the ultimate objectives are, and therefore what the KPIs and the metrics need to be that will be indicators on whether a partnership is successful. So, do not sidestep this during negotiations. If you put it off, it it often does not. Um, does not come back. Uh, And and be mindful of the fact that it also has to be joint metrics. Uh, Oftentimes, when we ask um, companies whether they track metrics, they say yes, but they actually track only their own metric. They don't care at all whether the partner is successful. Um, But you actually want to track the joint metrics, and you also want to have a good sense on whether um, the, the partner deems the, um, the, the venture successful as well. It's a bit like a marriage. You do want to know whether your partner is, uh, is happy in the relationship as well, um, because otherwise, the, the, the relationship won't last very long.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Can you share any examples of a partnership governance structure that worked particularly well?
2: So, in this situation, it was two energy companies who wanted to create their JV to reduce cost and risk. Right. So common, uh, common objective, uh, they inked the deal rather quickly, uh, and then they ended up having a very large board, about 28 people. That's really very large. Um, they were also all from the, the two parent companies as opposed to having external board members. And what happened was they got mired in these long meetings. There was tons of discussion, and the board really felt the need to control virtually all decisions, um, even smaller operational decisions. This made the operating management team uh, very frustrated, understandably so, and it made everything very slow. uh, And there was a lot of confusion about what the operating team was supposed to be doing, how they were supposed to be moving forward, and how they were being judged. The lack of efficiency Um, uh, for the board meetings as well as for the overarching operations of the JV started to become a a critical point for all of them. Uh, So what happened was they decided to do a bit of a restructuring um, and focus it on their governance processes. They ended up clarifying the roles and responsibilities for the board as well as for um, the, uh, the operational team. And that involved a couple different pieces. First, making sure that there was clarity about who was in charge of which pieces Second, giving the board members um, more of a committee-like approach so that they were able to use their time more efficiently and more effectively. Um, they also ended up reducing the board down to 11 team members, and they were able to make their meetings much more efficient by using that committee structure to have uh, clarity over who was making the decisions. They ended up coming to the, board, the full board meetings with recommendations that were then either ratified or sent back for additional information. Uh, and importantly, the the operating team became much more effective and much happier. So I think it's not just about how the board is functioning, but it's also how your management team or your operating team is able to get their role accomplished as well.
1: I guess that brings us to the final of your four levers, which is about making the partnership dynamic. How much change typically happens over the course of a joint venture or alliance?
0: Um, most partnerships uh, are experiencing either external environment that changes or internal rules that changes. Um, so if we think about um, how, how do partnerships stay around for, for years to come, so if, if we look at um, alliances from our survey that, that are deemed successful, the vast majority, four out of five, actually have had at least one restructuring. So uh, it's 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 a living breeding thing. You actually do have to evolve uh, your partnership because those that remained unchanged, uh, only a third of them survived. So if if you don't bend, you'll break. is uh, is a good uh, a good motto for most partnerships. What, what are the elements of a partnership that get changed? Um, pretty much anything. <laughs> um, as, I, as I mentioned, their, their partnerships that go into entirely different markets over time. Uh, the ownership and financials and some of it can be uh, agreed upon upfront. Um, but even service level agreements, you can have one operating partner in in the early lifecycle, um, and then uh, as another partner builds capability, may, may take over um, the operating. Um, so then that changes the SLAs that you you present um, that you put in place. The governance um, board's composition may change. Uh, the decision making plans may change. You may evolve your KPIs as well. Uh, especially as you change your strategy, your scope, your objectives, Uh, Organization and talent. Um, And here we would point out um, oftentimes what we see is partnerships start toward legacy employees from the partners. Um, But then as the organization needs to adapt to a competitive situation, et cetera, they bring in talent. From the outside, which may be better suited. So, yeah, don't don't be afraid to to look at the partnership more broadly and evolve um, as uh, as as needed, and make your uh, negotiations reflective. So, put in place mitigation plans. Put in place if you know it's going to change. Put in place formulas on how things may need to change. And so, and then while the partnership is underway, maintain flexible and reflective management. Track on how things are going. Uh, and then um, re-evaluate on whether the partnership still meets its original purpose or whether things need to evolve.
1: Got it. So we've got four levers, um, but which one do you find is, the, is one of them the most important? Um, or is there one that uh, companies often stumble on most regularly?
2: I'd actually say those are two separate questions. I think the clear foundation is probably the one that I would say is most critical. Because without that, you are potentially wasting your time uh, or you're setting yourself up for some very difficult uh, moments, either in the negotiation or in the life of the partnership itself. Um, I think the one that most people miss is actually um, the ability to have this dynamic partnership, the ability to set up ahead of time the reevaluation and restructuring. Um, People have a very negative view of restructuring, and it isn't actually a negative thing. It, It can just be some tweaking that are very healthy uh, and and positive uh, experiences to go through if you handle them well.
1: So would you advise then that partners discuss the conditions that might require a potential restructuring even at the earliest stage, almost like a, a prenup?
2: Best practice is absolutely to have uh, clear triggers for restructuring or reevaluation and In in ideal cases, you actually say every two years or every year for the first five years and then every two or three years after that, we will come back together, evaluate whether we're still achieving our goals and what needs to be shifted. So instead of saying whether we need to shift, it's what needs to be evolved because it could be something very small and simple or it could be something broad and and wide-reaching. So setting ahead of time the expectation that you will have those reassessments helps smooth the way a little bit for you. And it makes it a little bit more palatable to come together with an excitement and an energy that can make it positive.
0: Yeah. And, um, what, what we often see is things actually morph over time. So the people who negotiated were very clear on what the foundation was. But then as you start operating, the operators, and especially the second generation operators, may not be fully aware of the foundation. And if you are able to put together the dynamic partnership and the metric element, it's it's a way to... Maintain the fact that everyone keeps being aligned over time. What was the original objective? Was the current objective? People don't like to talk about how could this go wrong and, and how could this all end, right? Um, but putting the mechanisms in place to review it, evolve it, it's it's ensured that you keep having a clear foundation throughout the life cycle of the partnership.
1: How do you decide when a JV or alliance is the right solution versus when you should be looking at a merger or an acquisition instead?
2: That's a pretty complicated question. Um, So, so, um, because there's a lot of different views on this, and I'd actually say that alliances are quite different for when they're preferable versus JVs versus M&A. So I think if you're thinking about it, an alliance versus M&A, those aren't, those aren't not usually uh, next to each other on your structural decision scale. Uh, it's usually M&A versus a joint venture, and then JV versus alliance, alliance versus con, uh, contractual agreements. So that's, that's the spectrum you usually see. In terms of when you have a preference for M&A versus a joint venture, I, I like to take the stance with M&A of, are you the right owner for this asset? Are you actually the right company to and then operate the, the, uh, the, the resources that you're going after? Because if the answer is yes, then there's a case to be made that M&A is, is preferable and it will be um, easier for you to have full control. You'll be able to rip out synergies more effectively, uh, push yourself forward for, for your revenue. Um, so that control can be quite appealing. However, if you're not the right owner for it and you don't have the skill sets, and this requires kind of brutal honesty, Um, If you're not the right owner for it, then you can actually destroy value and create a very negative situation, whereas a joint venture, a little bit more complicated, sometimes a little bit more trying to continue forward um, in terms of of making sure you put the effort in. Uh, But the joint venture can actually preserve value that you might otherwise destroy if you're not the right owner. Also, there are a lot of joint ventures where, either through regulatory situations, uh, geographic concerns, or just the fact that you can't get access to the right asset, uh, you might want to have the joint venture instead of doing an acquisition for the resources or the or the assets that you're talking about. So sometimes there's a structural constraint, and sometimes it's that you need to marry your skill set and your capabilities with your partner's skill set and capabilities or access.
1: Eileen, Ruth, thanks again for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for joining us inside the strategy room. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on McKinsey.com under the strategy and corporate finance practice page, where you can also find links to our previous podcasts. And if you'd like to receive our latest insights, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCK strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Thanks again for joining, and we look forward to having you join us again soon at another episode of Inside the Strategy Room.